Let me just pray for us. Uh, Father, we recognize that uh, we need you, that you are the one who can give us rest and hope. Uh, Father, just pray that as we come to your word, that you would cause our hearts to bow before you. Father, who else can we go to? Where else can we go to for the words of eternal life? You have them, and we pray that you would speak through your word now to us by your spirit, and that you would humble us, that you would convict us, and that you would change us, and that you would really cause us to grow in our awe of you and our love for you, Father. So just pray that you'd be with us, and in Jesus' name, amen. And if you'd like to go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 3, uh, we're looking at verses 22 to 36 this week. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Lee. I serve as a ministry apprentice here at Harvest Glasgow. Uh, and this morning we're continuing on in our series in John uh, called Take a Look. Uh, I want to start, uh, as you turn to John 3, I want to start by asking you this question. If you had to summarize in one sentence what the mission or purpose of your life was, I wonder what you would write. Uh, we see mission and purpose statements around us all the time. In fact, in the last few weeks, um, most of us will have received a, a letter from the Prime Minister and it will have ended with uh, the, the, the familiar uh, mission statement that uh, is so well known to us all by now. Stay at home, save lives, protect the NHS. And in such a unique way, we all share in that common mission and that common purpose um, at this current time. As we come to John 3, and we come to this section in John 3, we find ourselves this morning uh, with one of the most memorable and most powerful mission or purpose statements in the Bible. And it comes from John the Baptist in verse 30. He says, he that is Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. That statement is really at the heart of what we are looking at today. The question is, what has led John to make this his life's purpose? And why is it written down here for us to see now? Apart from a few brief mentions in the rest of John's Gospel, this really is the last time that we'll come across John the Baptist. It's his final word on Jesus before Jesus' public ministry really begins to take off. And it serves as another layer of testimony to confirm for us the truth about who Jesus is. And we'll see it's a humble yet passionate plea from John the Baptist um, to, to leave us in no doubt about where the direction of our lives should be headed and who it is we need to follow. What he wants us to see here is that the reason he's given his life to, to point to and exalt to Jesus because no one is greater than him. No one is more worthy than him. So if you don't know Jesus this morning and you're looking for a reason to go to him and you haven't yet grasped just how great he is, then these verses are here. John's life, John's testimony is here to, to leave you in no doubt as to where the direction of your life needs to be headed and who it is you need to follow. If you do know Jesus this morning, then what these verses, what John's life is here to show us is that a life that is lived to make much of Jesus, a life that is lived to exalt Jesus above everything, is the most joyful life we can live. So that's why I pray we'll see this morning that we need to go to Jesus, that we need to listen to him, believe in him, because he is the one who has life. And he is the one who can truly give us a joyful life. So the first thing we see here is this, that no one is greater. I must go to Jesus. Jesus has just been in Jerusalem. We saw that in the conversation he had with Nicodemus. And now in verse 22, he's moved with his disciples out to the countryside. And they begin to baptize people. And we also see that John the Baptist is baptizing people. So we have two groups. We have John the Baptist and his disciples baptizing people. And we have Jesus and his disciples baptizing. And then a discussion begins between John the Baptist's disciples and some of uh, and the Jew about purification. However, that discussion about 
purification quickly turns into a discussion about popularity. They go over to John the Baptist and they say to him, look, see that guy you're talking about? Look, he's baptizing people and everyone's going to him, John. Is this the way it's supposed to be? Is it, what are you going to do about this? What, what, are you going to, what are you going to do? For them, Jesus had become the new kid on the block and some of John's disciples don't like the fact that he is gaining popularity. Their jealous tone and attitude is revealed in how they address Jesus. They refer to him as he, yet they still respectfully address John the Baptist as rabbi. And it is also highlighted in how they exaggerate or over-exaggerate the fact that everyone was going to Jesus. What's happening here is that John the Baptist's disciples had failed to grasp just how great he was. They failed to understand why John the Baptist had given his life to point to Jesus and to make much of him. For them, it had become a numbers game. But for John, this provided another opportunity to show them who Jesus really was, to point to him and to declare once again his love and his affection and his allegiance to Jesus. So John responds to this debate about who everyone should be going to. We get to see a life lived to make much of Jesus. We get to see what a life lived to make much of Jesus looks like. We get to hear from someone who saw and experienced Jesus firsthand. And we get to see why John has given everything to exalt Jesus so that we might be left with no doubt as to how great Jesus really is. So John gives us four reasons. He settles us to be it by giving us four reasons, four truths about why he has given his life to make it much of Jesus and about why Jesus is so great. The first thing John says is this, everything I have is from him. Verse 27 says, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John is saying, everything I have is from above. All that I have, my ministry that was given to me is from above. The gifts that I've needed to carry out, the strength to endure, the fact that people have responded, it's all because of him. It's not because of me. That's the reality, and that's the reality for each of us, that everything we have comes from God. We can't receive one thing. That's what verse 27 says. Not one thing comes to us apart from God whether we choose to recognise that or not. The fact that the sun rose this morning, the fact that it rains at all, is all evidence of God's grace towards us. And John humbly recognises this so that the disciples might see that, so that, that we might see that Jesus is the only one who can offer us all that we need. Jesus is the only one who can give us what we truly need. And that is why people need to be going to him. The second truth John, John Ballas gives us is this, I have been sent by him. John reminds him, I'm not the Christ. If it hadn't been clear to them by now, then he's restating it for him. I am not the Christ. Jesus is. I have been sent to prepare the way for him, to announce his arrival. And that's what we've been seeing throughout the first few chapters of John. John the Baptist is the promised one from the Old Testament who has come to prepare the way for someone greater than him, to prepare the way for Jesus. John's in effect saying, look, I'm doing the job I was given. All these people going to Jesus... That's exactly what was supposed to happen. That's exactly what my purpose has been. For all you kids at home who um, who uh, have been off school for a while now, I wonder if you're still going to get an end of your report this year. And wouldn't it be fascinating if your parents were now asked to contribute to that report based on how you've been working over the last month or so? Well, I wonder what you think they would write about you. If Jesus had given John an end of your report here, he would have gotten 10 out of 10. Because people were going to Jesus. John had done the job faithfully that was given to him and people were going to Jesus. John's whole purpose in life was to prepare people for Jesus' arrival and to point to him when he came. And we were being reminded of that here because we need to be directed towards Jesus. 
In making that definitive statement to John the Baptist when he says, I'm not the Christ, but have been sent before him, John is displaying a deep understanding of how his identity in Christ shapes his ministry and his purpose. An invitation here is for us too to embrace that same identity when we give our lives to exalting Jesus. We get to embrace freedom from trying to fix ourselves or fix other people. We remove the, the burden of approval and affirmation that John's disciples were looking for, but which John wasn't. That, that approval and affirmation that we so often crave from others, we get to shepherd people towards someone who can actually save them from their sins. Humility, faithfulness and, and endurance in making Jesus known is the fruit of a life that rejoices in being known by Jesus is a fruit of a life that gladly submits to Jesus and sends people to him. That's what we see evident in John Baptist's life. The third, third truth we see here um, is that his people belong to him. Verse 29, John, John draws on this beautiful and biblical image of a bride and his bridegroom. It says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So we came across this language already in chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. And this language of bride and bridegroom is something that we see throughout the Old and New Testament as a means of how God refers to his people. Isaiah 62, 5 says this, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. These verses give us a vivid picture of not only of what John's job is, but what Jesus is like towards those who go to him. He loves them. He longs to have and to hold them. That's the language used here. To protect and to provide for them and to sacrifice for them. What John is saying here is that I'm just the best man. I'm not the groom. The, the bride belongs to the groom. These people belong to Jesus. If you've ever been a best man, you'll know that uh, the job of the best man is to, to advocate for the groom, to stand by his side. And, and he's most certainly not the main attraction. His, his job is, it only lasts for a short while. He says his bit and then that's him out of the picture. His job most definitely is not to be a distraction for the bride bride, or, or even worse, to steal the bride. Um, which for John the Baptist would be quite a hard thing to do considering the fact that he wore camel's hair and probably had locusts stuck in between his teeth. Just like the best man, John's job is coming to an end. His best man's speech is nearly over. He said his bit. Now it's time for the spotlight to go on to Jesus. It's time for the groom to speak, to take hold of his bride. So John's life compels us that Jesus is the one we should go to because fourth reason, my joy is complete in him. Look at verse 29. Look how John talks about Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom, that is John the Baptist, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Whilst John's disciples are jealous of Jesus, John is rejoicing over Jesus. He is long for the day to see him, to hear him, to tell people about him, to be able to, to point people to him. As John watches the wedding ceremony begin, it brings him great joy. He gets to, the, to see the bridegroom take hold of the bride, to love her and to care for her and to keep her and to hold her and to forgive her. And notice it's not just a little bit of joy. He rejoices greatly. His joy is complete joy. If you don't know Jesus this morning, then let's listen to this witness of John and see that a life that finds complete joy in knowing him and living for him. And look at the kind of Jesus that he wants you to go to. A Jesus that provides all things, who 
will give you a new identity and purpose, who will take hold of you and love you, and who will bring you complete joy. He is a great Jesus, and he is a gracious, gentle, loving Jesus. For those of us who already know Jesus, the call here is to give our lives to and experience the joy of exalting Jesus and making him great. John Piper says this, If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. And that was true of John the Baptist. He lived a hard life in the wilderness in speaking the truth. He took great risk and ultimately was imprisoned and beheaded for what he said. But his joy was full. His joy was complete. This whole section is summarised really in that one statement in verse 30 that we looked at at the beginning. He must increase, I must decrease. John's life was dedicated to making Jesus great because he knew that that's what people needed to do. They needed to go to Jesus. And his own joy in Jesus is here to compel us that he is the one we need to go to. And he shows us that in the way in which we exalt Jesus and experience complete joy is by decreasing ourselves, not hogging the spotlight, not making that about us. And maybe you think that seems like a bit of a degrading thing to make less of ourselves. And in a world where self-esteem is often the solution to the problems that we face, it really goes against the grain. But what we see here in the life of John and what we're invited to experience is that when we give our lives to increasing Jesus, we get something better than self-esteem. We get a lamb who's willing to lay down his life for us. We get a bridegroom who is willing to have and to hold us. We get a saviour who is able to take away our sins. We get a king who will rule justly over us. And we get a Christ who confirms God's promises to us. That is what we get when we increase Jesus and decrease ourselves. When we understand the value that he places on us because of the vows he makes to us, we are free from that from the burden of, of self-importance and, and seeking self-significance. Instead, we happily and humbly make less of ourselves because we know how much Jesus loves us and we long for other people to experience that love also. And these verses are so instructive for us as a church too with regards to our identity and, and our mission. All we have is from God, our resources, our gifts, any growth. We would have any spiritual fruit. It's all from him. It, it defines our identity and frees us from the burden to do what only Jesus can do. It instructs us about our mission and our content uh, and the content of that mission. Uh, like John, our, our job and our joy is to say, look, here is Jesus. Go to him. Listen to him. Run to him. Repent and believe in him. And I'm sure sometimes people get sick of it, right? They, they think all these guys do is talk about Jesus. Or maybe sometimes within the church we think that maturity moves means moving beyond Jesus. Or we think that the culture needs something more nuanced or more relevant than the biblical Jesus. But that's not what John did. And that's not what Jesus has called us to. J.C. Ryle says this, We can never make too much of Christ. We can never have too high thoughts about Christ. We can never love him too much, trust him too implicitly, lay too much weight upon him and speak too highly in his praise. He is worthy of all our honour that, that we can give him. He will be all in heaven. Let us see to it that he is all in our hearts on earth. These verses really just call us to be a church, to be followers of Jesus that are authentically humble, to be a church that doesn't prize platform or praise from others or numbers or influence or the perception of others, to be a church, to be followers, to be um, 
leaders who are not jealous of other ministries who faithfully proclaim, proclaim Jesus. Our role is to be bystanders, to be best men who rejoice at the bride and the bridegroom. An increase in resources or influence or members or popularity must never be in, 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 increased or eclipsed by an ever-increasing love for and declaration of Jesus. It must never be eclipsed by an ever-increasing love and declaration of Jesus. No one is greater than him, therefore we must go to him. That's what John Baptist dedicated his life to declaring. Secondly, no one is higher. I must listen to Jesus. Verse 31 to 35 really form the foundation for why Jesus must increase and be exalted above everything. They show us why Jesus is even greater than John and why ultimately we should listen to Jesus. If you notice back in verse 29, it's the voice of the bridegroom that John rejoiced over. Now we see that theme of Jesus speaking and us listening being expanded in these verses. So why should we listen to Jesus? Well, the first reason we have in these verses is because he has come from heaven, verse 31. He's come from above. He is above all things. This speaks to his supremacy, his authority, his rule and his reign above all things. The key point in verse 31 is, is to show us that Jesus is greater than John and therefore we need to listen to him, to what he has to say. And ultimately to show us that his authority means he is trustworthy. There's no need to play Chinese whispers here. Go and listen to Jesus who has actually come directly from heaven. We should listen to him because he's come from heaven. And second reason, because of what he has seen and heard. Jesus has seen and heard it all. From eternity past, he's existed with the Father. And he's been sent by God the Father to speak on his behalf. That's what verse 34, if you look down, tells us. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So Jesus isn't making it up. When we come to him, when we listen to what he has to say, it's not just of him. He's not just making it up. He has been sent to speak the very words of God. So when we hear Jesus, we hear God. And we see that there's only two reactions to Jesus' words. We can either receive them, verse 33. We can acknowledge and believe that Jesus' words, which are God's words, are true. And they aren't just true words. They are truth itself. When we receive Jesus' testimony, we are saying, yes, God, you're true, your words are true, and I believe them. Our second option is to reject, then the verse 32. When we reject this testimony, we reject the truth, and rather than affirming that God is true, we are ultimately saying that God is false, that he is a liar. This is what is at stake, and that's why God is speaking through these verses to us now, to each of us to take Jesus seriously and to submit to Jesus' authority. You might ask, well, how can I be sure why should I listen? Well, at the end of verse 34, we see that the Father has given Jesus the Spirit without measure. So we saw that back in chapter 1, that, that Jesus has the Spirit, that it came and descended on him and remained on him was an affirmation of his authority. So that's how we can be sure that we need to listen to him. But why should we listen to him? Because of what we saw last week in chapter 3. The Spirit is what gives us new life. So in giving Jesus the spirit without measure, the Father confirms that Jesus has been sent by him. Not only that Jesus has been sent by him, but that Jesus guarantees that we can be changed by him. So just think about that for a minute. Jesus has a spirit without measure. The spirit has been given to Jesus in a way that is off the scale. There is no end to what he can do. There is no end to how he can change us. There is no end to his ability to change our lives and to save us from our sin. No one is out with his reach or his resources. In listening to Jesus and receiving his testimony, 
We can be made new because Jesus has the spirit without measure. We can be made new because Jesus has the spirit without measure. And the third reason we must listen to Jesus is because of what he holds. Verse 35, Jesus' trustworthiness and authority are reinforced by the fact that God has entrusted all things into his hands. All things, the entire universe. Earlier we thought about the responsibilities of a best man, but what about the bridegroom? Well, for, for me, my responsibilities on my wedding day were, were a few things. Um, and the responsibilities of a bridegroom, uh, his limited responsibilities probably reflect, reflect uh, his reliability. But God gives Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, all things. So it's hard to try and wrap our heads around that the entire universe, all, universe, all things. And, and the level of responsibility which is given to Jesus really reflects his reliability. That's what uh, John the writer is trying to communicate to us here. And why does the Father give all things into his hands? Well, these verses tell us he does that because he loves the Son. God the Father sends Jesus from, a God, from above, tells Jesus to speak on his behalf, and then trusts Jesus with all things because of his love for him, and by extension because of his love for us. In sending us his Son, he gives us the greatest gift we could ever know, and his pleasure towards his something, something is now something that has made possible for us. His love and his pleasure towards Jesus is now something that has made possible for us too. Jesus is great. He is from God. He speaks the words of God. He has been given all things by God. We need to listen to him. We need to go to him. And lastly, no one else has life. I must believe in Jesus. Going to Jesus and listening to him and seeing that he great that he is great is critical. And that's what, ver- what verse 36 makes explicitly clear. John 3, verse 6 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So if we haven't been sitting up and been paying attention by now, then, and we've gone through the whole of chapter 3, we've gone through the whole of John without really taking this seriously, then this verse is the equivalent to John the writer grabbing us by the collar and very bluntly but very passionately calling us to listen to Jesus, to go to him and to believe in him. John the Baptist has made him great. We've seen that Jesus is great because he's from above. But what do we do about that? What's at stake? Well, verse 36 calls us to believe in Jesus. And when we believe, we get eternal life. And notice that those who believe, uh, notice that those who believe possess that eternal life now And they're also promised to experience it in in all its fullness in eternity. The opposite to belief here is not just disbelieving. In verse 36, if you look, it's disobeying. So Jesus isn't just another option on the list of possible beliefs. He is the only option if we long to have eternal life. He is the only one worthy of our worship. And verse 36 tells us that he is the only one who can remove the wrath of God from us. The stark reality for each of us is that without Jesus, the wrath of God remains on us. You might ask, what is God's wrath? Well, it's not like our uncontrolled, unfair, hot-headed sort of anger or wrath. God's wrath is his holy, just, righteous and fair judgment towards those who reject him. And as verse 36 states, those who disobey him. That's the sobering reality for those without Jesus. Disbelieving in Jesus is more than a decision. It's disobedience and disobedience needs to be dealt with. It can't just be swept under the carpet. The reality of God's wrath reminds us that our sin is serious, hell is real, and that God will not turn a blind eye to evil and injustice. 
And we'd like to think that we aren't included in, in all of this. We Maybe we're even thinking this morning that that's really unfair. How, how is that possible? I don't deserve this. The reality is though that both by nature and by behaviour, we are deserving of God's wrath. That's what verses like Ephesians 2, verse 3 reveal to us. It says, by nature we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When we willingly choose to carry the weight of God's wrath upon us, it currently condemns us. We saw that in John, earlier in John 3. And in the end, it will ultimately crush us. If you've ever gone uh, backpacking or hiking and you've had a heavy backpack on your shoulder, uh, you'll know that the, the longer you carry it, the heavier it gets. Uh, and not only that, but the, the Bible also talks about um, how we, in some ways, add to that weight by our sin and stubbornness. And there's only so long we can carry that. There's only two end. There's only there's only two ways. It's going, two ways it's going to end. Either we take the bag off, we take the weight off of us, or it ultimately crushes us. Here's the thing: we can't remove that by ourselves. Only Jesus can do that, and that's what Jesus offers to do for us. He has come to take away our sin. He has come to remove the weight of God's wrath from us, and He does that at the cross. That's what we reflected on and and rejoiced in last weekend at Easter. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have not been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Only Jesus was able to bear the weight of the wrath of God and survive. And he did that willingly and he did that lovingly so that we might have life. His death means our sins can be forgiven and God's wrath is now removed from us. That weight is removed from us. That penalty has been paid for us and we now experience the freedom and the joy of eternal life in Jesus. So the question is, do you know that forgiveness? Have you repented and found rest in Jesus who removes the wrath of God from you? When we trust in Jesus, when we believe in him, we are delivered from the wrath to come and we get to enjoy life now and for eternity. So the call here is to believe, to go to Jesus, to put our trust in him, to listen to his words because of who he is and what he has done for us. No one is greater than Jesus. We need to go to him. No one is higher than Jesus. We must listen to him. And no one has life apart from Jesus. We must believe in him. Jesus is the exalted one above everything. And he alone offers us eternal life. And he invites us to come to him and to receive that life, and to experience the joy of living for him. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you that you sent Jesus into this world, into a world that rejected him, into a world that does not receive him, but you sent him because you love us. And we thank you, Father, that Jesus is great, that he can offer us all things, that he can save us from our sin, that he can remove your wrath from us the wrath which we deserve, and yet he willingly and lovingly gave himself for us, Father. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that Jesus is great, that our affections and our allegiance to him would only ever increase and grow. I pray that we would know his joy. I pray that we would know his life. And I pray, Father, you would help us to see that when we get when we get, when we we give our lives to making much of Jesus, we get to live the most joyful life that we can ever live. So we just pray, Father, that as we... As we come now to sing to you, Father, that you would just be working in our hearts to cause us just to see how great your son is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.